Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, draw near and open our hearts and our minds more and more to your word that we would be filled with your spirit who always comes with your word. Enlighten our hearts and draw us up that we might love you as you have loved us, that we might draw near to you as you, O Lord, have already drawn near to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So during this time of shutdown, a lot of our lives have slowed down, I think. In our family, one aspect of this slowdown has been paying attention to all the birds around our house. A little while back, we had a couple of wrens come and build a little nest on our front porch in one of our um, in one of our plant pots. <laughs> and we watched them come and go as they were laying the eggs and taking care of the eggs, and we would happily peek out our door to check on Mrs. Wren when she was sitting on the eggs, keeping them warm, preparing them to be hatched. And so after all that, it was exciting to see these eggs suddenly hatch and to hear the chicks in the, in the little nest peeping and chirping and wanting their mom to come bring them food, wanting the dad to come bring them food. Back and forth, we watched the mom and dad fly to feed them. And then a little after, about two weeks later, those chicks became old enough to fledge. They became old enough to leave the nest and begin flying and taking care of themselves and hopping around the yard. And so suddenly they were just gone. We didn't know what, we just were like, oh, we thought we might get to see them hop out of the nest and go do their thing. But they stuck around. We have a bird feeder out behind our house. And so we get to watch every day, many times a day, we'll look out our back window and we'll see this family of wrens come and start fidgeting around, start scratching around, start looking for worms and bugs and leftover seed and fly up into the into the bird feeder and get some seed or go get some suet and they just take care of each other and they've stayed together as a group. In all the busyness of our lives, we probably wouldn't have noticed that. But we've been forced to slow down so that we can sit and watch, to sit and wait, to observe these wrens. Something we wouldn't have noticed so easily. So today, as we approach this high priestly prayer, I want us to slow down, to dwell, to just hear what Jesus is saying to us, what he was saying about his disciples, about his apostles, how he was considering the struggles that they were about to enter into. Because one thing for us to remember is that here in these first few verses, when Jesus starts saying, I'm praying for them, he's not talking about us. Not directly. He's immediately thinking of his disciples. Later on in this chapter, he'll specifically start praying for all of those who will come to know the Father through their word. And so here initially, Jesus is talking about and praying for his himself and for his disciples. But it doesn't mean that these first few verses don't apply to us, that they aren't something for us to consider but I want us to keep that in mind that we're getting to hear Jesus pray for other people. We're getting to hear his prayer and getting to hear what the disciples heard that night of Jesus in the garden, of Jesus preparing for his own crucifixion. And so you might be wondering, but I thought in the garden Jesus prayed 
the prayer about the cup being taken from him, and if it wasn't taken from him, then nonetheless, the Father's will be done, not his. And Jesus did pray that prayer in the garden. I don't think these are in any way contradictory to each other. They have the same theme there. Jesus is focused on the Father's will in this prayer. After all, he says in verse 1, The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. One aspect of John's gospel is how he presents Jesus ready to go to the cross. He, he shows us the confidence that Jesus has in his Father. The other gospels help remind us of Jesus' own humanity, that yes, he was fearful of the cross, but yet he had confidence because that was God's will. That was the Father's will. That was the intention of Jesus coming was to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And so Jesus saying, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, is in a sense saying, your will be done, not mine. Jesus is ready to move toward the cross. He's ready to sacrifice himself because he knows the end result. He knows that that is the intention. He knows that the end result is what we hear about in verse 5. Now glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We hear these thoughts clashing and coming together of crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. They're all united. Jesus here in verse 5 is jumping all the way forward, seeking that glorification that he had before the world existed. Jesus is already looking forward and thinking about his ascension even before he's crucified here. Because they all are interconnected with each other. They all go together. And so let's just hear what Jesus has to say throughout these first few verses of John 17. And Jesus prayed, looking up to heaven, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In these first three verses, we hear Jesus simply opening up to the Father, crying out and saying, the hour is here. Glorify your Son so that he can glorify you on account of you giving him authority over all flesh so that he can give eternal life. And then he tells us what eternal life is, is to know the Father and the Son. To truly know the Father and to know the Son. And thus, Jesus glorifies the Father by giving out eternal life. And in his giving out eternal life, glory comes to the Son from the Father, which then redounds back to the Father and back to the Son and back and forth. They glorify one another. And this word for glory, we, I want us to step back and remember that this glory is about honor. Jesus is asking the Father to give him honor, to give him veneration, so that the Son can glorify him. It goes together here. Jesus isn't seeking his own glory. He isn't seeking to be lifted up. He's not seeking a self-fulfillment. He's not wanting this glory for himself. He's desiring to return to that place with the Father 
For from eternity past, they loved one another and they glorified one another. They showed honor back and forth. They showed veneration back and forth. They showed their love toward one another over and over, back and forth, redounding back and forth, ever increasing and overflowing. And so Jesus' desire for this glory that he will bring, that the Father will give to him, isn't so he can just simply be the center of attention, but it's so that then everything can be reflected back to the Father. And Jesus accomplishes this by using this authority over all flesh to pour out eternal life. He has authority over all flesh, and so he will give out eternal life to all whom has been given to him. Starts getting into the nitty-gritty aspects of election and predestination, but that's not where I'm going today. Because Jesus turns and defines that eternal life as knowing the Father and knowing Jesus. Jesus has made known the true God, and by making known the true God, he has made known himself. And by making known himself, he makes known the Father. Because they are one, two persons, yet one God. To know one is to know the other. To not know one is to not know the other. And so the Father has revealed himself through Jesus, his Son. And so we come to the Son to know Him, and as we know Him, we therefore know the Father. We can't know the Father without the Son. The Son is the one who brings us to the Father. Continuing in verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus accomplished the work here. This is I think partially referring to his ministry. His earthly ministry was beginning to wind down at this point. He was moving quickly toward the cross. In just a few hours, he would be hanging before the people on this cross. And so he's accomplished that first part of his earthly ministry in order that he can now go to the cross to die for the sins of the world and to then be resurrected and spend the next 40 days teaching his disciples, completing his earthly ministry at that point. But the first part of his work has been accomplished. But again, Jesus is seeing everything as a whole. For him to be crucified is him to then be resurrected and then to be ascended, which means that he's accomplished everything by one event happening. Because the rest of them will happen as well. It's a domino effect. That as one happens, the others have to come. And Jesus knows that that is how the Father has ordered it. That Jesus will enter into suffering first and then glory. And in entering into that glory, he will then return to the Father and be in his presence with that very glory he had before the world existed. In a sense, a glory that Jesus has not yet experienced in his human side, in his human nature. He hasn't been able to fully live in that glory yet. Because Jesus as a human didn't come into existence until Mary gave, until he was conceived in Mary. And so though the Son has always existed yet, mysteriously, He's a human being. And so he yearns to re-enter that glory almost in a way for the first time because of his humanity. To fully experience all of that and to carry his humanity into that very glory. To lift humanity itself into the glory of the Father. I think it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is and who he is that he desires to be with the Father. 
And he goes on to say, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. I think this is beautiful how Jesus describes the disciples now. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Ironic that just in a few moments after this prayer is over, Jesus will be betrayed and the disciples will scatter. But yet Jesus, knowing the work that he has accomplished, the work that is about to occur through the cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension, will seal his disciples in the faith. He will pour his spirit upon them on Pentecost, and they will fully know the truth, and yet they already do know the truth, for they have the seed of that truth. They have slowly come to understand little by little, more and more, that Jesus will simply say, they know that you that everything that you have given me is from you. They have kept your word, even though they will abandon Jesus in just a short time. They believe that you sent me, even though they will be confused as to why the Messiah had to die for the, for the sins of the world at first. They'll be confused at his resurrection. They'll be confused when he suddenly appears to them in his resurrection state, in his glorified state, able to just simply appear when he needs to before them. But they know that everything that Jesus has has come from the Father. Jesus speaks highly of them, seeing them as they are in faith, seeing that they do have faith, though it will falter, though it will hem back and forth, wax and wane in these next few hours, in these next few weeks. Nonetheless, they get it. They know that I am the Messiah. And as they see these things unfold, they will be more and more confirmed in that truth. It's a glorious thing to hear him speak of these feeble disciples in such a high and glorious way here. He sees them out of his love. He sees them as one of his own. Because they are one of his own, he is fully at work in them to bring them to himself. He continues in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. We always have to be reminded when we read this that Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's not praying for the world. Jesus' concern is his disciples in this moment. He is praying for their protection. He is praying for them to remain in the faith in the long haul, in the long term. He is concerned for them, and he is handing them back to the Father to whom they belong in order for the Father to protect them, to guard them, to keep them in the faith because Jesus is leaving them. Through the cross, through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, through his ascension, he will be leaving his disciples here on earth. He won't be abandoning them, no, but he will be leaving their presence, their physical presence. He will no longer be physically with them. And so he prays for them. He wants the Father to take care of them, to keep them as his own. Because all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And Jesus being glorified in them means the Father has been glorified in them. And if the Father has been glorified, 
then he glorifies the Son, who in turn glorifies the Father back. All that is Jesus's is the Father's, and all that is the Father's is Jesus's. And we come to find out that whatever is Jesus's mysteriously becomes ours through our union with him. And so, therefore, all that glory, that love, that greatness that exists between the persons of the Trinity becomes poured out to us. Because all mine are yours, Jesus says, and all yours are mine. And he continues, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is about to leave this earth. He's about to leave this sinful world behind in his ascension. He's already looking forward to that again. But yet, his disciples are remaining in this sinful, broken world. Therefore, they must be protected, Father. They must be kept in your care. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That mystery, that mystery of the Trinity all wrapped up before us. That what is the Father's is the Son's, and what is the Son's is the Father. The name that the Father has placed on his disciples, on Jesus' Jesus's disciples, is the same name that belongs to Jesus. So therefore... They have Jesus' name on them. And the Father is to keep them in that name so that they will remain united, that they will remain moving forward in faith, moving forward in the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for them. And that is what Jesus is praying for here in these first 11 verses, for himself to bring glory to the Father and for the Father to glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. So he can reveal eternal life through his act of sacrifice and resurrection and ascension. To reveal what that eternal life is knowing the Father and to know Jesus. And then he turns his attention to praying for his disciples right there in his immediacy that they would be cared for by the Father. That they would be protected. That they would be guarded. And so what does this mean for us? The main thing I want us to take away is that this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Think of it like this. Jesus' priestly work has always been going on since his ministry began. He's been interceding for his people. And so as Jesus here before his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension is interceding for his people there with him. He ascends into heaven. And as we learn from the book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews, as Jesus acts as a high priest before the Father, interceding for us now, interceding for each of us, remembering each of us, praying for each of us. And so this is a picture of Jesus praying for his disciples, yes, but it applies and comes down to remind us that Jesus himself is praying for us. He is caring for us. He is praying for us in particular and not this broken world. He's not praying for the people who don't believe in him right now. He is interceding for us because we are united to him. And through us, he will bring those people who don't believe in him to himself. Because eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. And in Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit upon his disciples, he sends them out to preach forgiveness and repentance 
and all those who come to believe that forgiveness and repentance has been accomplished, that forgiveness is accomplished in Jesus, they come to repentance and faith. They come to turn from their sins, acknowledging their sins for what they are, sins, and to acknowledge them as the things that are sin. That means that they should draw away from them more near to the Father, to Jesus by the Spirit, so that we will know this true eternal life in the here and now, to know the Father and to know the Son. And so though this high priestly prayer is primarily about the disciples here in these last few verses that we've heard this morning, it comes down to us as a reminder that Jesus is thinking of us now in heaven. He is before the Father proclaiming us, praying for us, pleading for us, so that we can come near that throne of grace, so that we can come to the Father in Jesus, knowing that Jesus has already prayed for us, that we can come near the Father, knowing that we are in Jesus, and that the Father hears our prayers on account of him. The Father does hear us, and that should bring us deep comfort, to know that the Father hears us on account of Jesus, not on account of my sins. After all, Jesus was praying for these disciples right before they were about to abandon him, saying, Look, they have done and kept your word. They know everything. They have, I've given them the words, and they have received them and come to know in truth. They have believed that you sent me. And yet they'll abandon Jesus in just a little while. They'll turn back, yes, because the Father is at work in them, because of what Jesus has done, because they are in the Father. They are in the Father's name because they are in Jesus' name. But it's a reminder to us that Jesus is praying for us even in the midst of us about to fall away into sin. In the midst of us turning from him to sin, he is praying for us so that we will turn back from that sin and confess it and receive his grace, receive the renewal of his forgiveness. He desires us to turn to him always even when sin has ascendancy over us, that we would turn from that sin once more toward himself to confess that sin that has been forgiven, to receive that forgiveness anew on us, to turn and to know the Father and the Son in the here and now. And so Jesus is calling us now to know himself and to know the Father truly. And he is praying for us to do that. Because he intercedes for us, just as he interceded for his disciples on that night he was about to be betrayed. So let's take comfort and turn to the Lord and rejoice. Turn to the Lord in prayer and praise. Turn to the Lord and be in his presence. To be in his presence through his word and, to pray, and, and in prayer. To fellowship with him, to slow down, to stop and to relish that Jesus is praying for us now, that we would know the Father and know the Son. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.